we know you can't get enough of your favorite flavors. Luckily, Kroger Free Pickup makes it easy to grab what you need without any surprise fees. Whether it's extra buns for the barbecue or those chips you just can't quit, start your cart with the Kroger app. Kroger, fresh for everyone. $35 order minimum restrictions may apply, subject to availability. It's the big $10 sale, so mix and match and get two, three, four, five, or even 10 for $10 with your card. So many great deals. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The we're going family style deal. Because I want a bite of your Big Mac. And I need some of your quarter pound. I'll try your filet of fish. There's a deal for every friend group at McDonald's. Order any two classics for just six bucks. Price of participation may vary. Single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer. Welcome to Mission Evolution Radio Show with Gwilda Wiecka, bringing together today's leading experts to uncover ever-deepening spiritual truths and the latest scientific developments in support of the evolution of humankind. For more information on Mission Evolution Radio with Gwilda Wiecka, visit www.missionevolution.org. And now, here's the host of Mission Evolution, Miss Gwilda Wiecka. Hello, my visionary friends. Thank you for joining us on another exciting adventure into future possibilities. This is Mission Evolution, where we share innovative thoughts and information with today's leading experts, bringing evolutionary information and solution to today's unique challenges. This hour, we'll be exploring the mutation of COVID-19. January 9th, 2020, the World Health Organization announced a mysterious coronavirus-related phenomenon in Wuhan, China. Since that time, the world's been on a wild ride. There's been much debate, information, and misinformation as to what we're in for and how best to respond. Ultimately, the most hope was placed upon producing an effective vaccine. December 11th, 2020, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration issued the first emergency use authorization for a vaccine for the, for the prevention of coronavirus disease. Mass distribution began, and there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. Then, interstage left, COVID's ability to mutate. What is being referred to as a double mutant COVID-19 variant, B1617, has now been designated a variant of interest. What is a variant of interest? How many variants are there? What do these mutations mean for the effectiveness of acquired immunity and the current vaccines? What are the best ways to protect ourselves at this point? How and when will this ever end? With us this hour is a gentleman we've had the pleasure of having on the show before, Dr. Dennis Carroll. Dr. Carroll has been kind enough to come back on to discuss what we might expect from the mutations of COVID-19. He has a doctorate in biomedical research with a special focus on tropical infectious disease from the University of Massachusetts at Elmhurst. He was a research scientist at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory where he studied the molecular me mechanics of viral infection. He has over 30 years of leadership experience in global health and development. Dr. Carroll has served as the director of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Emerging Threats Division. Dr. Carroll was responsible for providing strategic and operational leadership for the agency's programs addressing new and emerging disease threats. He currently heads Global Virum Project, an international partnership to build the systems and capacities to detect and characterize future viral threats. His website, globalvirumproject.org. Dr. Carroll, on behalf of our listeners and myself, thank you so much for coming again on the show. Well, it's, it's my pleasure to be here. You, um, as I recall, you predicted the COVID-19 pandemic. Would you please tell us a little bit about that? Well, predicting is a uh, uh, maybe an overstatement, but certainly uh, I, along with uh, quite a few others, understood that a virus like the COVID-19 virus um, was inevitable, that uh, existent in Mother Nature, circulating in, largely in wildlife. There are viruses of every uh, imaginable shape and color, if you will. And eventually these viruses, given a chance, given an opportunity, will spread to other species. They may <clears throat> 
excuse me, uh, be largely localized within, say, bats or rodents. Um, but their primary directive is to always look for new species, always look for uh, another opportunity to infect and spread. So that's what we're seeing with COVID-19. It, uh, as you noted, uh, appeared towards the end of uh, 2019. And since then, it has uh, spread around the world, infecting, you know, at least a billion people. So it is clearly a virus that is, um, you know, moving quickly and easily uh, among our populations. Mm. Yeah, and here we are over a year later. Has the progression of this disease surprised you in any way? Well, you know, viruses are always um, bringing new sort of variations on themselves. Uh, you know, this virus in particular, we've only seen a handful of coronaviruses. Uh, this is a particular family of viruses that have successfully infected people in the past. Uh, you may remember in 2003, the SARS coronavirus, a close relative to this virus, emerged uh, also uh, in China and spread to Canada and elsewhere in the world, uh, sending alarms uh, around the world about its potential. Uh, for causing a pandemic. It was far more lethal than this particular virus. Uh, and again, in 2013, we saw the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, another coronavirus, emerge in the Arabia Peninsula. And again, uh, sweeping through populations of raising alarms that this could pose a significant threat. Uh, the coronavirus that we're looking at now um, is different than both of those viruses in its ability to spread much more rapidly and much more easily among human populations. Mm -hmm. SARS and MERS had a difficult time uh, moving from one person to another. Uh, and ultimately, they've not produced a pandemic of this type. The coronavirus is far more infectious. Uh, and as you noted earlier, we're seeing new variants uh, which means we're looking at new forms of this particular virus as it spreads, it evolves. And one of the directives uh, of that evolution is looking uh, for opportunities to spread much more quickly and be even more efficient in transmitting. Uh, wherever there's a mutation that gives it an edge in its ability to infect much more easily, that will become the dominant strain and it will uh, continue to spread. And so that's what we're seeing today. After uh, spreading for a year, we're beginning to see uh, different versions of this virus mutating as it infects people. And we've seen in Brazil and Europe, in Southern Africa, in the United States, new versions of the COVID-19 virus that are all characterized by being more efficient and more easily uh, transmitted. So I understand COVID-19, like we've been talking, is a virus as opposed to a bacteria like cholera or the bubonic plague. What's the difference, for those of us that aren't doctors, what's the difference between a virus and a bacteria? Well, the big, the big difference is that um, viruses are not in and of themselves living life forms. Uh, they don't have the ability to replicate on their own. Bacteria can replicate completely on their own, but what viruses require, they need to infect another cell that has the replication machinery that allows it to duplicate itself. Uh, if it does not infect another living organism, it is not able to reproduce. So that's so a big difference. It's reliant on us to provide it with the machinery, the biological machinery that will allow it to reproduce. Sounds like it sinks deeper into our systems as a result, rather than just taking up residence someplace. It, it is incredibly dependent on our system just to be able to sustain and maintain its life form. Um, bacteria, they do not need to infect in order to reproduce. But if the virus was unable to find another host, it would not have the ability to reproduce itself. So that's, it's, this is our Darwinian um, dynamic 
uh, on a global scale right now as it spreads from person to person. Its sole purpose in infecting is reproducing. And without that infection, it cannot reproduce. So do we make vaccines for both virus and bacteria? Oh, sure. We make vac- vaccines. You know, there's a, a, a cholera vaccine, as you mentioned earlier, about bacteria. Uh, we have viral vaccines. So, um, you know, a vaccine is nothing more than a mechanism to trigger our immune system to be able to mount an immune defense against an invading microbe, whether it's a bacteria or a virus, it doesn't matter. Um, and so, uh, you know, a vaccine is very much a uh, exploiting our own natural ability to mount a defense against an invading microbe. And in this case, a vaccine allows you to mount that defense before you even become exposed to whatever it is that you're protecting yourself against. So you don't have to be infected by the COVID-19 virus in order to mount an immune response. Uh, the vaccine um, mimics what the, vac- what the virus would do without the risk of causing illness. So how do the vaccines compare in effectiveness with those for virus and bacteria between the two? Well, um, you, you really can't compare, um, you know, the immune response to a virus or a bacteria. Uh, there are a lot of viruses out there. We have a, a very difficult time mounting uh, immune response to uh, HIV, for instance, is a virus that after over 30 years, we're still struggling to develop a vaccine against. And that's just because of some very extraordinary features that the HIV um, virus has, as opposed to this COVID-19 virus. It's really remarkable. Your listeners should really uh, be in awe of how rapidly the scientific community was able to produce a vaccine, not just a vaccine, but extraordinarily effective vaccines. The vaccines we're looking at today that we have access to, that people have the opportunity to be uh, vaccinated with, are historically effective. It's just mind-boggling, if you will, um, how 12 months ago, there wasn't a glimmer of hope of having a vaccine within nine months. And here we have it. And the world is benefiting um, by having access to these extraordinary vaccines today. So how, how does, and I, I, I'm with you, I was, I was just shocked at how fast that came out. Um, how, how do antibiotics fit in here? Well, antibiotics, they're not a vaccine. They're a drug treatment. And in this case, um, you're exploiting the antibiotics are um, basically effective in treating bacterial infections, not viral infections. Um, And these are derivatives of natural um, pharmaceuticals, if you will. Uh, It was discovered that fungus uh, produce as part of their own defense mechanisms um, these chemicals which protect it against bacterial infection. And scientists uh, 70 years ago discovered that these chemicals that the fungus were producing um, were extremely effective in protecting humans against uh, bacterial infection. We also have antivirals. Those are also therapies that target, in this case, viruses uh, to be able to uh, minimize the clinical uh, consequences. So antiv- antivirals and antibiotics don't protect you from infection. They protect you from the illness that an infection might cause, either from a virus or from a bacteria. Vaccines really are tr- targeted to protect you from infection itself, as well Sounds as like- uh, you know, as well as making sure you don't get uh, ill. Putting a, a preventing the fire versus trying to put it out. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly right. Think about forest fires. Vaccines are about 
preventing a fire to, from beginning. Um, you know, drug treatments are about having water uh, allowing you to snuff the fire out once it's begun. Well, we are at the end of this segment. Um, Dr. Carroll and I will return after this important message, so don't go away. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. family style deal because i want a bite of your big mac and i need some of your quarter pound i'll try your filet of fish there's a deal for every friend group at mcdonald's order any two classics for just six bucks price of participation may vary single item at regular price cannot be combined with any other offer again this is mission evolution missionevolution.org dedicated to unification and evolution of consciousness to our faithful and thoughtful audience we really value your opinion and would love to hear from you what do you think about the ramifications of covid-19 mutations email me at info@missionevolution.org at and give me your thoughts or questions so we can all share them on the next show with us this hour discussing COVID-19 mutations is biomedical research scientist, Dr. Dennis Carroll. His website, globalvirumproject.org. Dr. Carroll, recently a COVID-19 variant, B1617, has been designated as a variant of interest. What is a variant of interest? Well, you know, first off, there are lots of variants out there. And all that means is that Every time a virus reproduces, it risks creating a mutation in its own gene structure um, because it, it doesn't have its own reproductive machinery and it basically has to borrow or hijack um, the reproductive machinery in the cell it's infecting. It doesn't have, if you will, quality control. It doesn't reproduce itself um, perfectly. So there's always, with each reproduction, a slight error that might occur uh, in the, uh, the new version of itself. That said, most of these changes are of little consequence whatsoever. Most changes in the genetic structure um, do not uh, impart any new um, physical properties to the virus. But there occasionally are certain changes, particularly those changes that occur in um, certain areas within the gene of the virus that we know uh, speaks to very specific features or functions of the virus. In this case, the ability to infect. And when we see mutations in those areas, you start to be concerned that they may be mutations that will enhance its ability to infect human to human much more efficiently. So when you see these mutations, you want to begin tracking and monitoring them. You would make them um, variants of interest because they occupy a change in the gene structure in a particular domain that speaks to a function of the virus, in this case, infection. So the variant that you're referring to is one that uh, emerged appears to have a much higher transmissibility rate. We're seeing it move across different parts of the world right now um, with much greater speed and efficiency uh, than the earlier versions of the virus. So is it safe to say that while uh, in reproducing, they can just make a mistake in their in their genealogy. This um, is this also a mistake, or is this an intelligent mutation to uh, make us more available to it? Well, first off, it's it, they're random mutations. So, and it comes down to probability. If if you allow a virus to reproduce itself um, as widely as we've allowed this virus, again, remember it's emerged over a year ago. 
and it's had the opportunity to infect and reproduce in hundreds of millions of people. And every time that happens, every time it reproduces, there's a random mutation that may occur. And so it's inevitable, given enough opportunities uh, to mutate, it's going to find one version of that mutation as it infects hundreds of millions of people that will increase its efficiency. And it, it's as if um, you're in a race and you have a mutation that allows you to run a little faster. Well, then that person that gets that mutation would run that much faster than all of the other people. And that would become the dominant uh, version uh, of you know, that particular event. So we're looking at a consequence of not having brought the virus under control early. The more it has a chance to infect, it has a chance to mutate, and the more chances to mutate, there's always the risk that uh, these mutations may confer added features uh, to the virus, make it more transmissible, it could also make it even more lethal. It could kill much um, higher numbers of people. So these are concerns that we have as we don't bring this virus under control. We are creating opportunities for these mutations to be um, generated. And we could live in a situation where all of the advances we've made to date with the vaccine um, could be lost because new versions of the virus could be less susceptible to the vaccine and outpace our ability uh, to bring it under control. Now, you said something interesting. You said we allowed this to spread. How did we allow it to spread? Well, we've allowed it over the last year by not, as a global community, not really abiding diligently with the methods we do know that would have stopped its spread in the first place. Wearing masks, social distancing, personal hygiene, even in the absence of a vaccine, we have shown that these measures, when um, complied with, really stop the ability of this virus to move person to person. And we've seen across uh, Europe, the Americas, uh, elsewhere in the world, uh, people being remarkably non-compliant uh, in adhering to these measures. So the virus only moves from one person to another if we allow it. It's a direct consequence of our behaviors. We don't take responsibility for protecting ourselves, then we're directly responsible for allowing this virus to spread as far as it has. We don't need a vaccine to bring this virus under control. A vaccine is clearly a desirable um, advancement, but we can control this virus if we were really diligent in using the measures we know are extremely effective. It's, it's very interesting, isn't it, Dr. Carroll? It's like when I go out and I get in my car, I sit in my car, I put the keys in the ignition, I reach over, I put on my seatbelt, I don't think anything about it. I don't see it as a violation of my personal rights. And yet there's been this outcry against taking these precautions. Um, I know you're not into psychology, but what, what's going on there with our people? Well, you know, your guess is as good as mine. But it is worth noting that there are parts of the world that have, in fact, um, been uh, extraordinarily successful in controlling this virus, and particularly in Asia, and where one of the big differences culturally is in the West, we really um, hold near and dear our individual rights. And you see that uh, play itself out in people protesting the restrictions being imposed on them for wearing masks and uh, these other measures of social distancing. Uh, Asia countries are much more built for um, community responsibilities. And so the compliance with uh, mask wearing, with social distancing, those are measures which are not um, being rebelled against as they are in the West. So. Uh, it, in some way, it just is a direct consequence, I believe, um, of our really 
having an excessive view about the individual's rights as opposed to the community good. And in some way, we've lost a sense of balance. We do believe, and I do believe, in individual rights, but we always have to temper that uh, in terms of what is also good for society. And these discussions, uh, rebellions against masks and social distancing, really are at odds with the public welfare as opposed to the individual want. It does go back to the needs of the many versus the needs of the few, doesn't it? Certainly does. Yeah. Certainly so does. what what's COVID-19's ability to mutate mean for the effectiveness of vaccines? Well, that's an open book. We don't know yet. I mean, what we do know is as long as this virus remains in circulation uh, anywhere in the world, it will continue to evolve and mutate, posing, an op- posing a potential risk to uh, the vaccines we do have. So it's really a race against time right now, not just vaccinating people in uh, North America, but vaccinating people everywhere. This is not about one country. It is about the global need. As long as there is a virus circulating uncontrolled in any part of the world, it can pose a threat everywhere. And that's Yes, we're so really- linked anymore. Yeah. No, I think we're, we're intrinsically interdependent with each other. So ultimately, if this virus continues to spread unfettered in any region of the world, we put at risk all of the advances we've made. Versions of this virus that will be less susceptible to the vaccine will inevitably emerge. Um, and we're going to have to pay the price for that. So if a person has had COVID-19, are they... Um, and how long are they immune for? And does that immunity last? Well, that's a good question. And sadly, we don't really have a clear answer. We've we've seen natural immunity um, be conferred to some people. Uh, we've also seen other people have been reinfected even um, after having been infected once before. So natural immunity is does not appear to be as anywhere as effective as these vaccines, particularly um, the ones that are in use now, which are extraordinarily effective in triggering immune response, that probably outdoes uh, unnatural exposure to this virus. But even at that, we don't know how long these vaccines' um, protective effect remains. They're tracking it now. Uh, We're seeing that at least six months after the first populations were infected um, or vaccinated with these vaccines, they still maintain a very high level of protective effect. So we'll have to keep our eye on this. And this will really tell an enormous story in terms of how long uh, the vaccines will continue to play this extraordinary role they have uh, in terms of protecting people from infection and illness. There's, you know, there was some talk about, well, I've got a good immune system, so I don't have to be worried. But if you have a good immune system, um, can you still pick it up and carry it and infect other people? Well, one of the things that was a surprise about the COVID-19 virus was to the extent that uh, the populations of people who could be infected be asymptomatic, that is, showing no signs of illness at all, but still carrying the virus and shedding, allowing the virus to jump from them to other people. So that silent transmission, if you will, was a real surprise. Uh, We typically see people infected and those who become, who are carriers and transmit the virus typically are, for most uh, illnesses, uh, require that they become ill. But at least 30, maybe even 40% of the population that was infected um, had no signs or symptoms whatsoever. So So unless we've been tested, we have no idea if we're out there um, exposing other people. Well, that's absolutely right. And one of the um, challenges has been that we've seen that younger people um, are ones that are less likely to have serious illness uh, than um, older or people with pre-existing conditions. So, Do you mean like as, as in children even? Even children. Though with that said, what we're seeing more and more of are younger people and even children. 
showing up with illness and showing up in hospitals. We don't know whether that's a change in the virus or um, something else that might be going on. So that is one of the things you'd be very concerned about is as along with these different mutations, these different variants, there's an opportunity for this virus to become far more um, lethal or far more, uh, you know, presenting uh, in children and in younger people. Than well, it's time. It's time for another station break. Okay. Dr. Carroll and I will return to our discussion shortly. So you stay right there. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. This is Mission Evolution. Did you know our entire Leading Edge information-packed past episode collection is available for listener download with our compliments? Visit our archives at www.missionevolution.org for our ever-growing selection of guests and topics. To find out more about me, Gwilda Wiecka, my school, and other evolutionary tools we offer, visit www.findyourpathhome.com. Our guest this hour is Dr. Dennis Carroll. We're speaking about what to expect as COVID-19 mutates. His website, globalvirumproject.org. We were talking about how younger people are now showing up um, as more susceptible to it than they were at the beginning of the disease, and but we don't know why that is. Is am I am I correct in, in saying that? Well, we're seeing younger people showing up. We've always seen younger people showing up. Um, so we're not sure whether or not the, um, they're presenting more than they have in the past is, but as we go forward, there is always the risk that among the different mutations that will occur in this virus is to make it more lethal or, uh, for populations of people that right now are not as impacted as others. So it's it's that is a concern we should all have. This is a very dynamic, rapidly evolving virus. And the more time we give it to continue to evolve, we run the risk that not only will it become more transmissible, we also run the risk that it can cause more serious illness and that illness could be more widely distributed across all age groups, including children. So we need to be very careful and very mindful that what we see in this virus today is not necessarily what we'll see in this virus six months from now if we allow it to continue to evolve. It's it's amazing how different people respond differently. Um, my uh, daughter's husband, my son-in-law, came down with it, and it just about just about took him. Um, and he's living in a small house with my daughter and three children. My Two grandsons tested positive. The younger one, which she's like five, she, she was indeterminate. They couldn't tell for sure, but she seemed to be negative. And my daughter tested negative. How reliable are the tests? Well, the tests are, you know, reasonably reliable. They're, they're, it depends what test you're getting. If it's a rapid test, they have, they're not as reliable as the laboratory tests. Um, which are far more reliable in telling us whether you've been infected or not. So it's, you know, the rapid tests are really intended to allow rapid uh, diagnosis as opposed to having to wait several days uh, in order to get the laboratory test. So it's a trade-off between um, accuracy and speed. So, so like when you go, like I had to go into the hospital, um, and they want to take a test, of course, you know, so you get the lovely thing up the nose. And, but within, you know, 15 minutes, they, they came back with a negative. That would be the rapid test, yes? That is not the rapid test. That's right. This is, it's a very much needed um, speeding up of 
diagnosis. Clearly, there needs to be advances and improvements in the test, and, and there have been over the last several months. But with that said, um, you know, it would really be to our collective advantage if we had much more uh, highly accurate, rapid tests so that we didn't get these confusing um, uh, diagnoses, negative or positive either way, and uncertainties that go with it. It's still surprising how quickly they came up with tests for that matter. I mean, people have been, you know, the, the scientific community has certainly been pulling together to break records, haven't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, you know, this is, this is where we really need to take a pause to appreciate that much of what we've seen in terms of the vaccine development, particularly the two vaccines associated with Pfizer and Moderna, What's impressive about them is that they are based on an entirely new technology that we've never used before for mass vaccine production. And it's a technology that's really been under development for over a decade for other purposes, in this case, uh, for cancer research. But they quickly pivoted and used those advances um, towards developing a vaccine for COVID-19. So uh, repurposing it is finest, yeah. Yeah. So mm -hmm. it's it's a wonderful example of how investments with one purpose in mind um, can be adapted and used for an entirely different purpose and to our all collective uh, better good. I mean, it's really quite extraordinary. I've heard some rumors. Of course, there's a lot of rumors, and that's what we're trying to take care of here. We are. Um, is that the the vaccines that you just mentioned actually impact the our RNA? Is that correct? Well, they they are RNA vaccines, um, but they don't. They're only a fragment. They're only a very small sequence for this region on the um, the virus that encodes for binding to our cells. So it's not the whole RNA of the virus. It's a very small fragment that is very specific to that binding site. And that's what you're triggering the immune system to recognize, to recognize that binding uh, profile on the virus and our immune system then attacks it. So, so it's, it's impacting the virus's RNA, not ours? Oh, it's not impacting our um, RNA at all, has it? Not at all, no. And Thank you for clarifying again, that. Again, it's yes. just taken a, um, a sequence fragment that encodes for a very, very small portion of the virus's RNA and essentially holds that up as a, if you will, a, a picture for our immune system to look at, recognize, and then when the virus does infect us, it identifies that site by remembering that image, and then it attacks it, period. So it's an incredibly non-invasive way of triggering your immune system to be maximally ready for any time this virus may uh, infect you. It, it, it sounds like will essentially stop the infection immediately. It sounds like you're sharing information, biological information, with your body. Yes. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So, again, it, it, think of it as um, an image, a photograph that you're presenting to your immune system and says, if you see this image, and it's that image of that very specific binding site, then you need to activate your immune system to be able to um, stop it from infecting. And oh, the intelligence is amazing. Does. Yeah, yeah. So does acquired immunity protect us from mutations of the virus or at least lessen their impact? Well, so far, um, all of the work that the vaccine producers have been doing, they've been monitoring these variants to understand to what extent um, the vaccines remain effective. And what we're seeing with most of the vaccines that are out there right now is that they still maintain a high level of effectiveness, but not necessarily as high as it was against the original version of the virus. So 
in some cases, we're looking at diminished um, uh, efficacy, which is a reason for concern. Um, but the vaccines still provide such a high level of protective effect that you're still uh, very much protected against even the variants that are circulating right now. Um, but it's it's a signal that we should be really concerned about even newer ver versions, newer, newer variants that could be increasingly less susceptible. So it's we're starting to go down a road um, as we move through this pandemic that now raises concerns that if we aren't diligent and we're not fast, we're giving the virus more time to adapt to the countermeasures, the vaccines that we've developed, and they will produce versions of themselves that will be uh, far less susceptible. That said, um, the vaccine manufacturers are creating sort of a next generation of vaccines against the COVID-19 variants so that in the future, we may require booster shots to protect us against those. But again, these are booster shots that would have to be administered to the entirety of the world's population. That is no small undertaking to continue so having to do that. Yeah. What a challenge. What? Yeah, I've, here's another buzzword we've been hearing. What is herd, herd immunity? Well, herd immunity is something that we've all experienced in the past. Um, think of measles is an example of where we've had and to some extent lost herd immunity. When we had the vast majority of people vaccinated against measles, when children were routinely vaccinated in childhood against measles, then it basically once you got to above 80% of the population protected, there wasn't enough uninfected people or unvaccinated people for the virus to be able to survive. It needs to have a large enough pool of unvaccinated people for it to be able to move from person to person. And when you get that large cohort vaccinated, you then it then means that you protect forward transmission, even for those people who aren't vaccinated. So they get a sort of a protective halo around them um, as a consequence of everyone else having been vaccinated. And we're estimating that about 80 to 85 percent of the population needs to get vaccinated for there to be that kind of herd immunity. So again, think about measles. We had several generations now of herd immunity against measles where people began to disregard the importance of the vaccine because they didn't see it as a, um, a disease that they had to worry about. And we saw more and more people begin not to get their children vaccinated. And with that, we began reducing the overall protective effect, the population effect, and we began seeing measles outbreaks uh, in the United States and other parts of the world uh, because we dip below that um, herd immunity um, level. And that's the, that's the power of herd immunity and that's the vulnerabilities we have when we get lax in being compliant with sustained vaccination for diseases like measles or in this case, COVID-19 will be with us um, for a very long time and we're gonna have to maintain a high level of uh, vigilance, even after we get this virus under control, it's still going to evolve, it's still going to change, and we're going to still require um, vaccination, I think, uh, for the foreseeable future. At what percentage are we right now vaccinated for COVID-19, the first run of it? Well, within the United States, I believe we're somewhere around 30% <sighs> fully vaccinated. But again, this is about the world. And we can't, in terms of this infectious disease, we can't only look at how protective we are when only one or two percent of the world is currently vaccinated. 
So it's this is one of these issues that we have to understand that if we're going to really achieve a protective effect and most importantly, really minimize the opportunity for new variants to emerge, the whole world needs to get vaccinated, not just the people in the, in the United States or Canada. What's what's the holdup? Um, we're just about out of time in this segment, but is it a financial issue? For the world being so far behind, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, right now there's a supply issue. Oh, okay. The sheer amount of vaccine that's available. Gotcha. Um, so we, it is the end of the segment and time for another quick pause. Dr. Carroll and I will be back to continue our discussion shortly. This is Mission Evolution coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Welcome back. This is Mission Evolution, bringing together gifted people of service to the world. I love to hear from our audience. Your thoughts are very important to me. To suggest a topic or a guest that you think would be of interest, email us info at missionevolution.org. This hour, we're sharing thoughts with a biomedical research scientist, Dr. Dennis Carroll. His website, globalvirumproject.org. Dr. Carroll, we've had, what was the worst or or the most recent uh, pandemic we've had um, that kind of compares to what we're dealing with now before COVID-19? Well, we had in 2009 uh, the H1N1 pandemic. Um, The virus in this case was an influenza virus, a different family of viruses from the coronaviral family. Uh, It, however, was not as lethal. Uh, fortunately, as this particular um, pandemic virus is. But that pandemic was also an opportunity to learn lessons about how we can mobilize our responses and coordinate our actions. And for as much as we learned, unfortunately, we did not apply those lessons uh, when this particular pandemic occurred. So a lot of the past experiences did not um, come into play. We didn't really benefit from um, what we learned, which was an enormous amount about how to uh, control um, a pandemic of this type. And that's why I think we were quite amazed at how quickly it spread around the world um, in the early months, even though it was preventable and could have been stopped. It could. How, how quickly could we have stopped it if just what we already know was put into place? Well, well to think about this. In January, we were first hearing about this uh, virus, as were other countries. And in particular, I'm going to point out uh, three examples, Thailand, Vietnam, and South Korea. These are countries that were the first recipients, the first cases of virus of the uh COVID-19 virus outside of China were showing up in these countries. They, they were, the, if you will, at the front lines. And these three countries heard the same messaging we heard coming out of China. But the response of their leadership was remarkably different. They heard that there was a new virus. They understood the implications of what that might meant. And they began putting measures in place in January that were really targeting, restricting the movement of this virus. They began promoting mask wearing, social distancing, personal hygiene. And it's worth noting that these are three countries today that still number the total number of cases that they've had in the thousands, not in the millions, and the total number of deaths collectively across South Korea, uh, Vietnam, and Uh, Thailand, which accounts for about two-thirds of the population of the United States, at fewer than 4,000 deaths. So this is a case where the same virus met with a very vigilant response, 
was stopped and really brought under control. Uh, the problem they have now is that uh, in those three countries, there's so much virus circulating around it. In other countries, it's constantly being reintroduced, and they have to maintain a very high degree of vigilance just to main, protect their population. But they've shown these measures, absent a vaccine, can work, can stop the spread of the virus. And if we had all taken to heart and sort of acted in, with the same kind of um, coordinated vigor, if you will, um, we would be in a far different place today than we are now. It's it's nice. You know, that to me is very empowering. We do have the power. We just have to use it. Now, how what percentage are they looking at of people that are vaccinated as compared to what we're looking at? Uh, these are countries that have very little access to vaccine right now. Goodness. So, you know, the United States um, right now has the most vaccinated population with the exception of very small countries like Israel. But when we're talking about the overall numbers of people who have been vaccinated, the United States is by far and away um, the most vaccinated country uh, in the world. And it really reflects sort of a, a sea change in uh, the federal government stepping forward um, over the course of the last several months, really providing leadership that was not there the first year of this pandemic. And yeah, we sure got caught with our pants down on that one, didn't we? Well, it certainly did. Yeah. And I, I've heard many people say recently, well, I've been vaccinated. I don't need to wear a mask. What's your take on that? What's your advice there? Well, first off, if you've been fully vaccinated and it's two weeks after your last uh, vaccine, um, you're at very low risk of uh, being infected. That That is true. And I think we are expecting to hear the Centers for Disease Control to come out with some um, revision in their guidance on uh, mask wearing and social distancing as more and more people become vaccinated. Um, but we still have to appreciate that the vast majority of people around us aren't vaccinated. And part of wearing the mask now isn't simply to protect yourself, but it's to, again, reinforce the messaging. We need to wear this mask so that everyone stays protected. Um, as more and more people become vaccinated, however, and we now are in a sea of vaccinated people, the requirement for the um, for mask wearing will will go down dramatically, I suspect. And CDC will be speaking to this uh, issue, uh, I think, in the coming weeks. So we in other words, we might be having some hope here of developing some herd immunity against COVID-19 with enough people vaccinated. Well, yes, but I think what we've also seen in recent weeks is the slowing down of vaccination as the um, more and more people are are not as eager uh, to get vaccinated. And I think that the early um, takers have taken the vaccine. Um, the next step is going to be convincing a fairly large segment of the population that is maybe reluctant and some are outright um, hostile to a vaccine. And we really are going to be challenged to make sure that uh, we really get that next cohort of 30, 40, 50 million people um, vaccinated as we move further into this. We need to get about 200 million, full, 200 million people fully vaccinated. Um, to really begin moving in the direction of herd immunity, the target is 260 million people. So Goodness. that's that's really the goal. We have a long ways to go. Well, there is a lot of um, hysteria out there about vaccinations and um, you know vaccine vaccine related deaths. How does the safety of this particular these there's several of them vaccines compare to the basic vaccines we get for other things? Well, let's first off be clear, every vaccine, every drug has a side effect. The question is how common is it and how significant is it? Uh, in the uh, recent case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, what they were seeing was that there was a risk of blood clots. And for this was basically a risk of one per million people vaccinated 
there was a risk of a blood clot. And blood clots are manageable uh, if the physicians are properly uh, notified and people are uh, attentive uh, to the potential adverse effects. But what that means is that if everyone in the United States um, was fully vaccinated, the number of potential blood clots would be in the hundreds. Not vaccinated, we've seen that we've lost 500,000 lives already. So that's that's the difference. The risk of a, you know, of several hundred people um, having blood clots, which are treatable, not insignificant. You want to be due diligent on that. But what we also know that if we didn't have the vaccination, in one year we've lost over 500,000 people. So the reality of the virus and the risk of the vaccine, they are disproportionately um, opposite each other. Well, that really helps to put things in perspective, doesn't it? So, well, I would hope it does. We can hope, yeah. So how do pandemics end? You know, it's hard to tell because, again, this is a global story. Right now, we have, we're watching events play themselves out in India which is extraordinarily alarming. Over 300,000 people were confirmed yesterday mm. to have been infected. Um, they, they're out of ICUs, they're out of treatment capabilities. We're watching similar scenarios in Brazil and across Amazonia. This is a global event, so how's it going to end? It's not gonna really end until we really come together as a global community uh, to stand together and take this virus on. We know what needs to be done. We know we can do it. The question is, do we have the commitment? Do we have the willpower to do it? Uh, it's a global event. So how's it going to end? It hopefully will end on a positive note, but on that positive note, it's going to require our taking responsibility, not just for ourselves, but for the entire planet. All of us have to work together. You had the Global Virum Project. How can what you're doing help there, help us now and in the future with these threats? Well, just remind ourselves that two years ago, the virus that we're grappling with today already pre-existed in nature. It was circulating uh, in bats uh, in, uh, in Asia. Um, the next pandemic virus, and there will be sooner than later, this is an increasingly more frequent part of our landscape because of just the dramatic changes in population pressure over this past century. That next virus already exists. It's already out there in, um, in nature. What we don't do a good job on is going out and identifying these viruses before they come to us. And the work that we're doing at the Global Viral Project is about going out into the regions of the world where these viruses are circulating and identifying where they are, what they are, um, separating out those viruses that have potential, could be potential threats to us from those that aren't, and beginning to put them on a watch list, if you will, for sustained monitoring that we can track their own changes while they're still circulating in nature, and essentially pick these spillover events up early or even prevent them. There's no reason why a virus circulating a bat should ever spill over into people. It's the behaviors we have. So the Global Virome Project is one about going to the virus before they come to us, use that knowledge to lower the risk of future spillover events and really make sure we never have a COVID-19 like event ever again. So um, we're just about out of time altogether. Um, what do you have to share with our people, with Mission Evolution's worldwide audience about COVID-19 and our future with it? Well, the only thing I could really say is um, if we're going to be successful, we have to take responsibility. And we need to be responsible, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors. We need to re-engage in our sense of social responsibility. Beautifully and, stated. Beautifully right? stated. 
unfortunately, it's gone so quickly, but we are out of time. Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for coming on the show. Aguilda, thank you for the opportunity. And again, stay safe and uh, enjoy um, the spring. <laughs> Our guest this hour has been Dr. Dennis Carroll, a biomedical research scientist that has served as director of the U.S. Agency for International Development's Emerging Threats Division and currently heads the Global Virum Project. His website, globalvirumproject.org. Remember, our entire information pack, past episode collection is available for listener download free of charge at www.missionevolution.org. This has been Mission Evolution with Gwilda Wiecka coming to you on the Exxon Broadcast Network, www.xzbn.net. Join us next time as this mission continues, bringing the latest vital information, resources, and support to an evolving world. Thank you.